Welcome to If You Love This Planet. I'm Dr. Helen Caldicott, and in this program we talk about the greatest medical and environmental threats to all life, such as nuclear weapons and nuclear power, global warming, ozone depletion, toxic pollution, deforestation, and many other social and political issues that relate to global well-being. So if you love this planet, keep listening. Hello and welcome to If You Love This Planet. My special guest today, joining me from Coffs Harbour in New South Wales, Australia, is Philip Caldicott. Phil has had 30 years of hospitality experience. He studied wine technology and marketing at Monash University in Melbourne and is a certified sommelier with the International Court of Master Sommeliers. Philip Caldicott is a teacher in hospitality management and wine appreciation and currently works as a restaurant manager. To be very open, he is my oldest son. <laughs> Philip, welcome to If You Love This Planet. Thank you. Do you pronounce it sommelier or how do you pronounce it? Sommelier. Sommelier. Okay. Now, um, many people listening to this program I'm sure are wine drinkers, they're sophisticated people, and I'm sure they're fascinated uh, with wine and wine production. Mm-hmm. Um, because you, um, you're a certified sommelier with the International Court of Master Sommeliers, would you like to talk about wine production and, and give us some of the history of wine production, if you will, Phil? Sure. Um... I guess uh, my being Australian, my uh, main knowledge is about the Australian wine industry. Yes. Um, in Australia, uh, wine has been grown and produced since the, I guess, um, 1800s. Um, and uh, there were certain areas which were obviously close to the, uh, to the early population areas in Sydney, which became um, uh, popular and, and uh, early planted, early, um, uh, I guess... Uh, uh, wine areas, um, including the Hunter Valley in Sydney, near Sydney, and the Yarra Valley near Melbourne. Um, so that's kind of how it started in Australia, and uh, it's, it's grown since then. Um, there are, there's a clear distinction between uh, old world and new world in terms of how, um, how wines are um, described, new world being the Americas, North America, South America, and uh, Australia and New Zealand, for the most part, of the old world being Europe. Yeah. Um, and all of the grape varieties that we use for wine, virtually all of them, uh, came from Europe originally. So they're all um, European grape varieties. Is that so for California, for Napa Valley and the rest? It is, yes. Even uh, Zinfandel, which is sort of seen as one of the classic Californian grape varieties, um, is actually uh, Primitivo, which is a, um, a, an Italian grape variety indigenous to the Puglia region in the south, southern part of Italy. Well, let's go right back to the Roman Empire. I know that the Romans drank wine, and I know that one of the downfalls of the Roman Empire was that they stored their wine in lead caskets uh, and wine um, 
damaged the lead caskets and the lead diffused and, and, and solubilised in the wine and they developed lead poisoning. Is that, is that correct, Phil? I know that there was lead used. The, the, um, the vessels that they used to store the wine are called amphorae and yeah. uh, I think they, there was some lead in the uh, mixture that they, that they used in the clay. But they also had lead in their in their pipes that carried water. Mm. So I think I'm not sure whether the wine or the water was actually um, the source, the, the primary source of the lead poisoning. Yeah, because lead can knock your brain off pretty fast, particularly children's brains, as we know now. Okay, so um, I think it might be interesting to come back to Australia because until the last few decades, Australia made its own wine, etc., but it's really doing well well on the world scene now, is it not? It's, it's a little bit of a bumpy ride, to be honest, at the moment for the Australian wine industry. Um, the main reason for that is because, uh, uh, as a result of the GFC, the Australian dollar is That's now... That's a global financial crisis for those in the United States. We use that terminology in Australia, GFC, yeah? Correct. Correct. Um, the Australian dollar is very strong vis-a-vis other currencies around the world. Um, in the peak of the Australian wine exporting period was probably in the 90s and early 2000s. The Australian dollar um, was quite weak against foreign currencies, so Australian wine represented excellent value. Mm. And uh, it was a style of wine which was very clean and very um, technically correct. What do you mean clean? Clean in terms of... Um, uh, being made, uh, let's say the science was at a, a level of sophistication where there was um, impurities or faults just didn't exist in, in, in Australian wines to a large extent. And so, so they're very clean, very uh, uh, expressive of, of the fruit which was used in, in the wines. Well, when, okay, so what, what's unclean wine? What, what do they add to the wine to make it not quotes clean. Oh, it's not what they add to the wine. It's possibly what they don't add to the wine. <laughs> oh. um, because faults can come from uh, infections from uh, bacterias and yeasts that um, are not beneficial to the, let's say, to the pure expression of the fruit which was used to make the wine. So, um, for instance, uh, a classic is, is a, um, a strain of yeast called Brettanomyces, mm. uh, which can exist in, in, um, in wine uh, wine storage vessels, particularly wood, mm. and it's very hard to to get rid of it once it once it exists. Um, it's it's quite pervasive, and it it imparts a um a smell of um of uh, we call it a mousy smell, um, kind of like a mouse urine smell, really, mm. to the wine. In tiny quantities, um, it adds complexity, but in larger quantities, it it becomes a fault in the wine. So. It's up to the, the, the consumer of the wine, I suppose, and wine judges to, to um, make the decision as to whether the wine is faulty or not um, in the presence of these kinds of, of um, products. So why, why were Australian wines so pure and, and without these, these um, impurities, yeah. so to speak? Yeah, so Australia invested a lot of, um, a lot of uh, I guess, human capital and, and uh, finance in the... 70s and early 80s, especially, and, and ongoing now, um, in uh, wine education. So um, all of our winemakers, or most of our winemakers, are tertiary educated, 
um, at Roseworthy College and Charles Sturt University and various others in Australia, mm. um, which are seen in the global wine industry as, as um, leaders in, in wine education oh. and also research. Um, also the CSIRO, which is a, um, a government um, organisation, a science organisation, um, spends, um, spends a lot of, uh, of uh, capital um, investing in, in, uh, in knowledge about wine production and, and grape varieties and so on. Well, how would that compare with wine producers, say, for instance, in the United States, California, uh, well, etc.? Yeah, in, in California, there's uh, UC Davis, which is also uh, um, uh, really uh, advanced in terms of wine education. So that, that definitely exists in, in California as well. Um, Australia ha- has been just um, uh, because of the number of people um, involved in the wine education programs and so on, um, a leader in, in, this, uh, in these developments. So. Well, what about Europe? Because, you know, Europe's had the most fantastic wines for centuries. Absolutely. But in Europe, the, um, the winemakers make wines according to tradition, and mm-hmm. that's very important in terms of how wines are made in Europe. So um, the traditional methods of making wine are not necessarily um, so clean in terms of keeping out these um, secondary uh, yeast and, and so on from okay. the wine. Yeah. Okay, so you get, um, you get wines possibly, some people would say, with more character and more sense of place with mm. European wines, whereas Australian wines, um, in some cases, can be um, judged as being possibly even too pure and <laughs> too clean. You know, I never understand why a bottle of wine, one bottle of wine might cost $10 and another bottle of wine might cost $140. How is that wine priced and judged, Phil? I, I, being a neophyte, I mean, I love wine, sure. but I don't know why some wines are so much more valuable than others. Okay, so there are a lot of factors, um, but some factors just to, to start the ball rolling um, are uh, tradition, um, a sense of place, um, judgments by uh, wine judges and commentators, um, about the wine. Uh, there's a wine judging uh, formula that wine judges use, mm-hmm. uh, uh, which awards points to various elements of the wine. For instance, aroma, appearance of the wine, technical quality of the wine, um, varietal expression, whether the wine is expressing the, the traditional varietal characters of the particular grape variety, mm-hmm. um, and so on. Uh, and also, um, higher level of um, whether the wine is actually uh, a um, an extreme or a, or an excellent example of the, of all of those characters. Okay, so points are awarded for all of those um, uh, areas, and for a maximum of twenty points. If you're a twenty point wine, then you get a gold medal at a, in the wine show judging system in Australia, anyway. Um, and those are uh, things which can add to the value of a wine. And you can charge $140 a bottle if you get a gold medal. Not necessarily. That's one aspect. Another aspect is uh, whether the wines are able to age. Um, some wines age extremely well for many, many years and improve in the bottle. Um, some wines don't. They're not made for that and they're not appropriate for that. So they're actually designed to drink now, if you like, or drink within a couple of years. In Australia and probably in quite a lot of other places, um, a huge percentage, something in the range of 90 plus percent of all wine 
is drunk within a few hours of being purchased. Yeah. So, um, and a lot of that wine is, let's say, it's not the $140 bottle of wine. It's more the 10 to $12 bottle of wine. Yeah. Okay, so the expensive wines are the wines which have uh, a pedigree and, and a, um, an ability to age well over uh, a period of time and, and actually add value to the, to the, um, a, as an investment. Um, these kinds of wine are actually purchased um, as an investment on purpose and sold down the track for, for um, a profit. So it's another yeah. way of, um, of imp- increasing the value of your, um, of your assets. I know because um, my friends who qualified in medicine, some of them collected art, which mm-hmm. is a way of investing. Some collected properties, but some did collect wines. That's right. And so the really famous wines, like the great Burgundies and the great Bordeaux, they're great over you know, decades and, and centuries even. Really? And so a particular wine which is produced from a particular property in, for instance, Bordeaux, um, is known to be excellent quality most vintages. Of course, there's vintage variation because you have rainy years and sunny years and so on. Mm. But if you get a great vintage and all the stars align, if you like, for that particular wine, um, those wines, um, you can, it's a very good bet that they'll be great wine. And so you're buying a name, you're buying a tradition, you're buying a, a knowledge of provenance, if you like, mm. and, and uh, all of those things, as well as cachet. Um, by cachet, I mean the, um, the value of the wine in terms of uh, how people perceive the wine. You know, Based on all those factors. I, I, I mean, I love food and I love wine, but I'm not sure... Well, my taste buds aren't quite as good as they were when I was younger, but I'm not sure if I had a you know a hundred and forty dollar bottle of say Bordeaux wine, if I could tell the difference with that wine, drinking it at a, at a meal or 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 a or a ten dollar bottle of wine. Can sure. you? I know that I've tasted some great wines. I've been lucky enough to taste some extremely great wines in my career. Yeah, and the really great wines. Uh, a phenomenal coming together of of lots of different elements, and so when they're in your mouth and when you're smelling them, the the sense of perception of, of perfection is is quite um, phenomenal. It's it's difficult to, to describe, perhaps, mm. but it's it's um it's it's a sense of balance. Like everything's come together in a perfect balance. Mm, and then it's you've got to mix it with a perfect sort of food. Yeah, if it's a if it's a food friendly wine, absolutely. And then if you manage to have a great wine with a dish which which matches it perfectly, mm. um, it's it's almost a transcendent experience. But possibly some training requ- is required to get to a point where you can appreciate that too. A transcendental experience. Like um, I'll, I'll compare it to art, for instance. Someone who's studied art mm. and and understands the history of art and the different types of, um, of, uh, of, of art movements of, that they've been over, over the years and so on, and techniques in painting and so on, might have a much greater experience looking at, for instance, Guernica than someone who reads comic books and watches TV. Yeah. So it's the same as someone, if someone drinks $5 bottle, bottles of wine um, and then all of a sudden they drink a $140 bottle of wine, 
they might not have the ability to appreciate that wine. Yeah, it's a cultural and educational thing. Absolutely. Now, what I and I'm interviewing Philip Caldicott, um, who's a, who's a specialist wine sommelier. What I never understand is when people um, describe wines, they'll say it's got a hint of blackberry flavour with this and that. I how the wine is is made from a grape. Mm-hmm. And the grapevine takes the water up from the soil. And there may be various elements in the soil and like, but I can't understand how wine can resemble fruit, which you know blackberry isn't isn't a grape, and the like and the like. Can you can you try and explain that, Philip? Sure. Okay, so there are um, hundreds of different grape varieties. Um, I compare it when I'm talking about wine. I compare it with uh, eucalyptus trees which people in California probably know about, um, but also um, other uh, plant species, there might be lots of different types of that particular plant. Does that make sense? Yeah, well, there are 500 varieties of eucalyptus, each As an example, of and each one has different... got different flowers, different seeds, different ways that the, that the leaves form on the branches, different bark, yeah. and so on. So. Yeah. Um, it's, a, it's exactly the same with grapes. So each different grape variety has got um, its own characteristics. So uh, Cabernet Sauvignon is one grape variety and Shiraz is another grape variety. They both produce black grapes, which can be used to produce red wine. Mm. But the flavour characteristics of those grapes and even the, the thickness of the skin and the amount of juice and the way that they respond to soil and so on uh, are quite different, so you get more. You can get more blackberry characteristics, for instance, from Shiraz, and possibly more red fruit, like red currant, cassis type characteristics with Cabernet, as an example. So that that's occurring because it's a, a different variety of the plant, and the the aromas and flavors that you get in the finished wine um, come from the grape variety but they also come from the soil because different soils have different characteristics as well. Mm. You might have red soil with a lot of iron in it. You could have granitic soils with different characteristics. Um, Some soils might have more organic content. Some might be more um, mineral-based soils. And and those those elements will definitely have um, an effect on the finished wine. For instance, the... the, um, the soil in Chablis, which is in the northern part of the Burgundy Burgundy region in France, is... um, quite uh, limestone soil, chalky soil. And a lot of people report a chalkiness or a, 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 a minerally characteristic in the top Chablis wines, which are white Chardonnay wines. It's very... So that's, a, that's, a, that's a function of where it's grown. Yeah. Okay, and um, some uh, sites, in other words, the way the, the gra- grapes are planted with respect to how much sunlight the site receives over the ripening period um, will affect how much sugar is produced in the grapes because the, the vines photosynthesize depending on how much sun they get. So that can affect the, the, um, the finished um, the wine as well. As the, wine, as the grapes are, are um, uh, maturing and becoming ripe, um, they concentrate um, different chemicals in their skin, seeds and juices and so on. And those chemicals uh, are the um, are the flavors and smells that you get in the finished wine? 
Okay, so... Okay, so, um, so I'll just continue that a little bit further. Yes. Um, if you can smell black currant or blackberry or whatever it is in, in the wine, then what they found is that the chemical in the wine that is producing that smell, it's like a volatile chemical, Yeah. is the same or similar to, they can find a, a chemical like that in blackberries. Oh, that's fascinating. Okay, so it's not the fact that there's, it, that there's blackberry in the wine. That certainly is not yeah. the case. Yeah. It's that the chemical in blackberries, yeah. which produces that particular smell, uh. and the chemical in the wine that produces that particular smell are the same or similar. And it's fascinating because the human sense of smell first detected that and then they went on to analyse it chemically, right? That's right. And what we've done is, well, what the wine industry or, or wine uh, uh, academics have done is is to develop a language to describe those smells. Yeah. So it might not, you know, blackberry might just be the closest thing that we can um, access in our brains in order to describe what we're experiencing. Yeah. So uh, the UC Davis actually um, produced a really handy tool, which mm-hmm. is uh, called the aroma wheel. And um, if anyone's interested, they can find that on the internet, UC Davis Aroma Wheel. Um, and with the Aroma Wheel, it lists hundreds of different um, smells that you might find in wine. Uh-huh. And then it uh, distinguishes whether those smells are mineral, um, a chemical smells, um, bacterial or, or, um, or fruit smells, even floral smells. So and that's really a really interesting tool when you're learning about wine is to go back to that, the wheel have the smell of the wine and see if you can identify on the wheel what you're smelling. Yeah, but the trouble is the more wine you drink, the less you're able to detect it because alcohol blunts the senses. I, I don't understand people who are wine tasters. I know that they have a sip of wine, swill it round, and then they spit it out, right? Yep. So I suppose they're not imbibing alcohol to blunt the senses so that they can not detect what they're trying to do. Yes. I mean, you do ingest uh, alcohol that is ingested through the um, the membranes in your mouth and your nose. Um, so some al- some of that alcohol will end up in your bloodstream. Yeah. Um, but if you were tasting wines for a couple of hours, um, you probably would imbibe less than the amount of alcohol uh, in a glass of wine, for instance. Right. Okay. So um, and those people are um, that's what they do for a living. They're, yeah. they're professionals and they're um, highly skilled at what they do. So they do have. Um, they do have a, I guess, higher than normal ability to, to detect uh, these smells and enzymes yes. and so on. Yeah, their nasal sense is very acute. Mm. The other interesting point I'd like to make in terms of tasting wine that people sometimes don't realise is that um, our noses are incredibly sensitive uh, organs, as we're probably aware, um, which can identify and distinguish literally thousands of different smells, if you like. Mm. Uh, whereas our tongues are more of, of an almost blunt instrument in a, in a strange sort of way. Our tongues can only detect um, sweet, sour, salty and bitter. And some would say also a fifth um, taste, which is uh, umami or a, a savoury flavour. And that's all our, our tongues can do. So we're, when we put the wine in our mouth, we're actually smelling all those different um, uh, aromas through the back of our mouth where it connects with our nose in the nasogastric passage, mm. uh, which is where our sense of smell is located. That's so all, the, all those um, really fine distinctions in the wine that we think we're tasting, we're actually smelling. Yeah.
Fascinating. Mm. Okay, now uh, let's get on to people would be interested. What you've got a a, a, a signal here to talk about preservatives. What do they add to wines to preserve them? What chemicals do they sure. use, Phil Caldicott? So, uh, wine is um, is susceptible to oxidation. Okay, so if it comes in contact with oxygen, um, it begins to oxidize, and oxidized wine um, develops a chemical uh, which is called acetaldehyde, um, which gives it the smell of uh, more or less fingernail um, fingernail polish cleaner, what it's called, which is also aldehyde. So once a wine smells like that, it's no longer attractive anymore. So in order to protect the wine from oxidation, winemakers add sulfur dioxide in very small quantities. And that's the main preservative which is used in wine. Um, it, it really is in, in, in very small quantities. If it's overused, it gives the wine a sulfurous smell. Mm. Uh, smells like burnt tires, which is also not attractive. So, but some people actually are, are very sensitive to sulfur and have an allergic reaction when they when they ingest sulfur dioxide. So, there are wines which are produced without preservatives, and uh, but those wines are typically meant for drinking as soon as possible. Really, what about in the olden days? You know, centuries yeah, it, ago. The, um, They've done chemical analyses of amphorae in from Roman times, mm. and they've found sulfur in those amphorae. Oh, fancy that! So they actually had worked that out back then somehow. Isn't that fascinating? Probably through trial and error over centuries, um, but they they um, by burning. Um, I think they used a burning technique to to produce sulfur, and they they had sulfur in the in the wine. So yes, yeah, so we've been doing it forever. Now, okay, to, to veer off a little, um, red wines are now said to be good for the heart because they have resveratrol in them, this chemical. Um, and at first, well, first you're not allowed to drink wine when you're pregnant or alcohol because it can damage the fetus. But secondly, it's now said that if you have two glasses of red wine at night, it's good for your heart, which I like because I like red wine. Do, sure. do you know anything about this, Phil, or would you... I'm actually not an expert in this area, but I have heard the same thing, Yeah. Um, that a, a glass of wine a day... Um, Keeps the doctor away. ...is not necessarily a bad thing, and can, because of the antioxidants in red wine in particular, yeah. um, can help with uh, cholesterol and so on. Um, but certainly um, wine is an alcoholic product, and so um, uh, using it responsibly is extremely important. Yes, that's right. And a glass of wine, it's really um, important to mention also that a glass of wine, in Australia, a glass of wine is considered to be 100 mils, 100 millilitres of wine. I'm not sure exactly what that is in ounces, mm. but 100 millilitres of wine is not a lot of wine. So that's what, seven and a half glasses per bottle. All bottles of wine are 100, uh, 750 millilitres, standard bottles. Mm. So if you have a large glass of wine, you know, in terms of uh, how the government the Australian government anyway, um, views wine, mm. then you put potentially having the equivalent of two glasses of wine. So that's, it's important to be aware of, of volume. And the other thing it's, it's important to be aware of is the, alcoholic, the alcohol content of the wine um, because it varies quite significantly. Mm. Um, anywhere between <clears throat> 7% alcohol by volume to upwards of, 15, 16.5% by volume. 
Uh, and so if you have a glass of a 100 ml glass of wine, which is 7% alcohol, you're having a lot less alcohol than obviously if you're having one that has twice as much per volume. Now, you, you do courses uh, teaching students about uh, serving alcohol responsibly. What, what are the main ingredients uh, that you teach the students about that, Phil Caldicott? Well, I'm not sure how relevant that is for American listeners, but in New South Wales and all of Australia, actually, um, uh, the government have identified that um, alcohol is... Um, can be misused and can lead to harmful behaviours and also um, uh, harm in terms of medical conditions and so on. The cost to the economy in Australia is in the billions of dollars per year. What? Harm uh, from alcohol? Harm, harm related to alcohol, yeah. Good Lord. Arrests, uh, domestic violence, um, uh, uh, self-harm, uh, and also medical conditions like liver complaints and... Um, and uh, heart disease and so on associated with alcohol. So the government has said, look, you know, we can't stop selling alcohol. Um, it didn't work in America in the Prohibition. It's not going to work in Australia in the, in the 2010s. And, and, uh, and, and so what we need to do is try to minimise the harm associated with the legal ser- serving or and sale of alcohol. And so everyone who sells alcohol in New South Wales has to do a course called Responsible Service of Alcohol which, uh, of which I'm one teacher among hundreds in New South Wales. Well, what do you teach them? So the responsible service of alcohol is be aware that alcohol does cause harm. It's illegal in New South Wales to, um, <clears throat> to serve someone alcohol or to sell them alcohol if they're um, under the age of 18 and also if they're intoxicated. So we have to have to, people who are serving alcohol uh, need to learn what intoxicated means mm. um, from the point of view of the law. And so... Um, Obvious things like slurring words, um, unsteady on your feet, fumbling with change, um, and all of those kinds of, of signs, uh, clues that someone might be intoxicated, inappropriate behaviour, um, inappropriate volume of, of speaking and so on. So if someone is, is um, deemed to be intoxicated, then they're refused service and they have to leave a licensed premises. In other words, if they're in a, if they're in a bar and they're intoxicated, they're, by law, they're not allowed to be in that bar, so they have to be told to leave. So do they abide strictly by those laws in New South Wales, Phil? It is much more strictly um, uh, police than it was, for sure. Yeah. I mean, of course, there are still cases. It's difficult to, um, to be 100% uh, on top of these things. People like to have a couple of drinks on their, on their night off or whatever. But it is, it is a lot more strictly police than it was. We're a very alcohol-consuming society and, you know, we started by the rum rebellion on the banks of Sydney Harbour when the British first arrived and stole the land from the Aborigines, right? Yeah, well, I mean, rum was a a means of currency back in those days. They paid the sailors in rum. Oh, I didn't know that. Sure. So when they got got their their payment, um, they probably consumed it. When you know when they had the opportunity, and so the idea of of, um, of drinking to excess in the times when it's available is certainly part of our culture, and it is all the way back to to, to England, which is where I know a lot of the original um, settlers in Australia came from, um, and uh, it's a, it's a big problem in England as well. We call it um, it's called binge drinking, which is uh, drinking to excess on on occasions, mm. and that's uh, 
it's, it's certainly a problem in England and in Australia. I'm sure it is in the United States too, and, and you no know doubt. I know it is in Russia. In fact, when I used to do a lot of work on, you know, during the Cold War on weapons and nuclear weapons, the uh, Russian soldiers used to drink the antifreeze liquid out of the tanks because they couldn't get their alcohol. I mean, people were so addicted to vodka. Anyway, that's that's an aside. Um, what about talking, Phil, about fertilizers, pesticides, herbicides and the like that are used on vines to produce the grapes for the wine and what impact that has on the wine? Sure. Um, So fertilizers have only been used, I'm sure um, some people are aware of this, in in agriculture for 50-odd years, maybe a little bit longer than that. I'm talking about chemical-based fertilizers. Made um, from oil. Exactly. Those fertilizers have been enthusiastically embraced by the farming community around the world and uh, and also chemical pesticides okay so using um, using chemicals to control um, bugs that might eat the grapes or the leaves on the grapevines and um, there are also bugs which exist under the soil um, which can um, uh, hurt hurt the grapevines as well and so chemicals uh, have been used for that and also as herbicides uh, sorry, not herbicides, um, um, fungicides. Fungicides. Uh, fungus is a big problem for grapevines. Grapes are very susceptible to uh, downy and powdery mildew, mm. and uh, those funguses can cause massive uh, crop losses. So it's already um, uh, not really a, a highly lucrative uh, game growing grapes, or probably a lot of kinds of agriculture. And if you lose a large amount of your crop to fungus or um, bugs or whatever, uh, it's going to hurt economically. So um, using those types of chemical inputs in the, in the grape, um, in the um, vineyards, um, has been a matter of, um, of, uh, of normal practice. So? So um, I guess what's happening at the moment is that... Um, Grape growers and winemakers are experimenting because they have concerns about the use of these chemicals. So they're experimenting with growing organically. In other words, uh, not using the chemical controls, but maybe going back to before the chemicals were available mm. and looking at how things were done back then because obviously wines were, were, were produced before the use of chemical inputs. Yeah. Okay, so um, using composts and using mulches um, using Bordeaux spray, which is a mixture of, um, of copper and, and lime, uh, which is uh, a naturally, they're both naturally occurring products um, without negative um, impacts on the, on the ecosystem. Um, and those types of, of, uh, of farming techniques are now being used. And what people are noticing is, and reporting, is that the wines are somehow more lively or more, um, mm. more interesting um, when produced with uh, using these techniques. That's interesting, you know, because anything that kills funguses or worms or insects uh, kills cells and our bodies are made of cells. So therefore, if these pesticides, fungicides and the like get into the wine, um, we're imbibing them and they could be dangerous to our bodies and in fact some of them are, are, are carcinogenic. Sure, that's that's the health implications are are a major consideration, and also in the in the vineyards, um, 
grape growers notice that uh, areas which have been heavily um, have had heavy inputs over the years. Um, they what they report is that the soil becomes dead, if you like. It doesn't oh. have doesn't it doesn't hold natural naturally occurring um, uh, biomass. So you and don't worms you don't have yeah lots of uh, there there should be a, a lot of um, uh, bacterias and, and different microorganisms living in the soil, mm. and uh, those are no longer present in, in these types of uh, systems. Now, what about the environmental impact of wine production? You've got that on your list to discuss. Yeah. Um, well, obviously, using chemical inputs, is, it has a, uh, an environmental impact because we're using um, uh, things which are produced from the oil industry. Um, then uh, not they shouldn't, well, in my opinion, they shouldn't be in the, in, in the environment, and there's no doubt that they cause harm, as I was describing earlier. Um, also, uh, winemaking is a, is a large user of water. In Australia, water is a, um, is a very valuable resource. I'm sure everyone's aware that Australia is normally a, a quite a dry place, and uh, grape growers uh, ir- irrigate their vines in order to increase crop yields. And uh, large irrigation uh, usage, especially in, in, um, in some areas in Australia, is causing a, a big problem with rising salinity. So as the water table drops, um, the salt level rises. So the, the soil that they're trying to grow their grapes in actually becomes saline. And uh, that's a big problem um, for grape growers. So they're looking at uh, new ways of, of irrigating using less water and being much more precise about the way they use the water. Um, instead of just flooding the area, which was uh, a way that was used in some areas, um, they're using uh, drip irrigators, only irrigating part of the vine uh, and not the whole root area um, to minimise the water that they use. And they're actually finding that the quality of the grapes is improving with, um, with more precise use of, of the water. Well, Israel's been doing that for years, using drip irrigation. And California as well, but not all parts of, 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 these, uh, of these countries because it's expensive to install drip irrigation yeah. as opposed to just digging a tunnel, uh, digging a trench and letting the water run through. But on the lo- in the long run, it's probably the, less that's expensive. Right. That's right. That's a different way of looking at it, isn't it? Looking more at how it's affecting us you know, as we go yeah. into the future. Um, I guess that's, in my opinion, how the whole planet should be starting to think, but that's the, um, that's the challenge, isn't it? Certainly is. Um, and with regards to water as well, um, water is used in the in the winery as well for um, uh, sluicing, washing, um, uh, and lots of other uh, uses in the winery. So um, the use of water, uh, some wineries in Australia and probably overseas as well, uh, using uh, water holding areas, ponds and dams and so on to keep the water after it's gone through the winery mm. and then reusing it instead of just putting it into the, um, into the sewage system. That's a good idea. Yeah. How long after you pick the grapes and you tread them down or crush them and get out the grape juice and let it ferment, how long does it take, you know, average for grape juice to turn into wine, Philip Caldicott? Um, so the, the grapes are picked in the, in the vineyard when they're ready. Uh, they go through a crusher most times. Um, the stems are separated from the grapes and, um, and the wine begins to ferment. Obviously, red wine is fermented with its skins because the skins are where the, oh, the yeah. colour is. Yeah. If you cut a, a black grape in half and look at the pulp, 
the pulp is actually a greeny color. So yes. There's no color in the pulp. You have oh. to, to ferment with the skin. Whereas with white wines, um, you actually want the delicate, fruity flavors of the juice in mm. most cases, not in all cases. Mm. And so the skins, which contain more um, bitterness mm. um, and uh, stronger tannic flavors, are um, quite often left out of the fermentation. Uh, fermentation normally takes seven to ten days. Is that all? Mm-hmm. Really? Yeah. Um, that's just the time. Once the, the juice is inoculated with yeast, um, the yeast uh, grows very quickly, um, procreates extremely fast, um, and uh, fermentation is basically the time that the yeast takes to consume all the sugar in the, in the, in the juice yeah. and convert it to alcohol and carbon dioxide. So once the fermentation takes place, seven to ten days, then you bottle it, do you? No, then a maturation uh, period and some other processes, depending on the, on, on the uh, winemaker's uh, choice of how, of how um, they want the finished wine to present. So some wine is stored in wood, uh. and um, the wood will impart characters to the wine. I'm sure everyone's had the experience of tasting a very oaky Chardonnay, which has been stored in a new oak barrel, um, and you find the sometimes the oak, um, can overpower the fruity um, flavors in in the original grape juice, so it's really um, uh, quite an important decision on the part of the winemaker uh, how they use oak or don't use oak in the in the production of the so wine. So, how long do they store it then in these containers after fermentation is finished? Anywhere from a couple of weeks to a number of years. Depending and on the how wine. do they stop the fermentation process, or does it naturally? Well, just... fermentation naturally stops when the yeast has been consumed by the grapes. Yeah. Uh, sorry, when the sugar has been consumed by the. And by it's the all yeast. turned to alcohol. Yeah. Uh, and then because... you store it to to induce all sorts of nice type flavors. Exactly, and so the the, the flavors that the winemaker is looking for in the finished wine are um, distinctly uh, affected by the choices that the winemaker makes at that ah, point. Ah, is that what it's about? Okay. And, so there's, and with regards to fermentation as well, there's also a, um, a movement, and it's been done previously as well, to use naturally occurring yeast rather than inoculating the, the grape juice. So um, yeast is around us all the time. We have yeast all over, over our body. There's also yeast all over the outside of the grape skins. So if you just put the grapes in a, in a container... Um, uh, the, the naturally occurring yeast on the grapes will cause fermentation. So that's another choice that the winemaker can make, whether they do a so-called natural fermentation or whether they inoculate the juice with a yeast strain that they choose. That's fascinating. So, look, I know that you write a column for a, a, a sort of food magazine uh, every few months on wine and different sorts of wine, which I find fascinating, and then you mix it with um, some very yummy type food. <laughs> mm. Do you want to talk about that? Because I find the way you write, I read it and I think, boy, I really want to cook that and I've got to get that wine. You know, it makes my salivary glands operate. So would you like to talk about that, Phil? A sort of mixture of, uh, uh, admixture, if you will, of wine and food and, and the sort of culture of, of food and, and the like. Sure. So um, the column I write is, really to introduce people to lesser-known grape varieties. And the idea is to um, talk about where those grape varieties originated um, and how they were probably brought to Australia 
and the, the areas in Australia where they uh, have a, an affinity. Um, something that I probably haven't mentioned is that certain grape varieties, for some reason, produce great wines in certain locations, but not in other locations. And that's quite interesting. The, the concept is regionality. And, for instance, um, uh, in France, in Burgundy, um, the only grape varieties that are allowed to be grown are uh, uh, Pinot Noir and Chardonnay. And that's because over the centuries they've discovered that those are the grape varieties that really produce exceptional wine at, uh, most of the time. And um, in Bordeaux, which is on the other side of France, on the western side of France, um, Cabernet Sauvignon and Cabernet Merlot are the main uh, grape varieties and there are a number of other supporting players, we might say, which produce great wine there. So you don't grow um, Pinot Noir in Bordeaux and mm. you don't grow Cabernet in Burgundy. And uh, in Australia and in California and, and other places, um, the similar types of um, site-specific um, uh, varieties have been uh, uh, identified. So I talk about uh, the, the, um, these unusual or lesser-known grape varieties and about where, you know, where, the, where in Australia those are grown uh, to produce the, the great examples. Um, so, uh, and then different wines have an affinity with, uh, with different types of food. So it's really interesting when you start learning about wine to taste different wines with, uh, with different types of food and see where the synergies exist, if you like. Um, and where uh, uh, drinking the wine you know, with a certain kind of food will enhance both the wine experience of the wine and the experience of the food. So that's that's uh, that's the the point of the column that I write. Okay. Well, now you've led us on. You've enticed us. Now you've got to give us some examples. You can't just leave us hanging. No, that's all I'm going to tell you. No, okay. Um, <laughs> okay. So. I guess when you know when you learn about uh, matching food and wine, uh, the classic thing is drink red wine with red meat and drink white wine with fish and white meats. Okay, and uh, that's a very simple way of of, uh, of I guess entering into the in, the game. Um, but knowing now, you know, as I've been describing, that there are hundreds of different grape varieties out there, uh, you can become a lot more subtle and a lot more uh, precise about about the wine and food matches. So uh, I guess the thing to do would be to look at a particular grape variety. Maybe I'll pick out um, uh, Cabernet Sauvignon as an example. Um, with uh, Cabernet Sauvignon, you get, uh, in, in really good examples, a beautiful structure in the wine. In other words... What does structure mean? Structure means that um, the wine has uh, an expression of the fruit, mm -hmm. which is quite often, um, you might think about, Cassis or red currant flavors, um, uh, red red berries, uh, sometimes raspberry, um, and then you also get um, a wood flavors from uh, because Cabernet is almost always matured in wood, so you get maybe a cedary or cigar box type aromas um, in the wine. Uh, you get tannins in in Cabernet Sauvignon. Tannins are um, a type of acid which is um, extracted from skins and seeds during the fermentation process. Um, and the tannins and the fruit um, impart a structure to the wine in terms of how it feels in your mouth. Ah. Okay, so tannins, tannins you also get in tea. 
when you get really, when you drink really strong tea, mm. it dries your your mouth out. You get that drying sensation in in your lips and and gums. Yeah, your mouth okay. crinkles up. Okay, so in a what we call a big cabernet, which has got a lot of tannins, you'll get that really puckery drying sensation. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Okay, what that does is um, it, when you combine that with food, um, it it almost cleanses the mouth and prepares your mouth for for eating more of the food. So because, uh, you know, but because the wine's got a uh, structure and if you have a balance of the tannins and the fruits in the wine, mm. um, then, uh, and it's, say it's a wine with a lot of tannin, we'll call it a big wine, it's got a lot of tannin, it will also have a great intensity of fruit flavors. Mm. Okay, so if you think about the red fruit flavors mm. and if you think about the, um, the tannins and the, and, the, um, and the structure of the wine, uh, you can then look at matching that wine with a particular kind of food. So with Cabernet, uh, the great example is always Cabernet and lamb, um, at, just as one example. Okay, so um, uh, if you have, uh, say, um, a lamb backstrap or, or a fillet of lamb um, cooked on, say, a char grill, so it gets a bit of a charry um, barbecue-type flavour, and then have it with a sauce that maybe has some um, red currant, um, through a, a, a meat reduction type sauce, um, you can imagine that those types of things might come in harmony with the wine, and you have this uh, experience of everything coming into into play. And why lamb in particular? Why that sort of? Just meat? because the 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 flavour it, it has an earth lamb has an earthy flavour. Um, it's quite a, a, a strong flavour for for meat. It's certainly not bland by any any means, um, and th- those strong flavours along with the tannins and the structure of the Cabernet, um, uh, create a, a sense of harmony. Mm. Okay. Enough. And you could apply those sort of um, that way of thinking or experiencing to lots of other types of wine and different types of food. Well, give us another example. Another example. Oh, a great example is, um, in, from my um, experience, uh, in the Hunter Valley, which is a wine-growing area um, just north west of Sydney, um, is very famous for the Semillon grape variety. Um, I talked before about matching wine grape varieties with regions. Um, Semillon and the Hunter Valley, for some reason, um, work very well together. The Semillon produced from the Hunter Valley, <clears throat> when it's young, has got a distinct lemon or lemony lime citrus flavour, mm-hmm. um, and it also has an interesting um, lanolin like smell. Lanolin is the oil that comes from sheep's wool. Yeah. Sounds very strange. That sounds very strange. Yeah. And it also has a, a minerally um, or slightly um, metallic um, element in the in the aromas as well. So you get those uh, all those um, elements in balance and um, and the wine is really refreshing and, and uh, has got uh, quite a lot of acidity and um, it's delicious, really um, beautiful, imagine, on a hot afternoon. Is it a white wine? Yeah, it's low alcohol, um, around 11% normally, um, really zingy, really citrusy, um, with these complexities as well of the, um, of yeah. the, of the, um, the lanolin and so on. The match with, um, with, with uh, young Semillon from the Hunter Valley and um, fresh oysters um, is quite remarkable. You get the citrusy... Um, flavor which cuts through the the briny um, iodine 
flavour of the oysters. Mm. And um, when both are going on at the same time, mm. get that really nice harmony again. Mm. Makes my mouth water. That's the idea. <laughs> and your mouth does water when you have a, a really citrusy, um, acid, um, a, 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 I won't say acidic, but with a wine with acidity in, in, in balance. Um, it is. Uh, it really. It actually does cause um, your salivary glands to uh, go into operation. As you used to say when you were young, it makes my mouth squirt. Mm-hmm. Okay, we want another wonderful example. I think you are using one of you some red wine from Italy or something with with some amazing food. Um. Okay, so Italy is is one of the repositories of of. Uh, of unknown grape varieties outside of their own regions. It's quite amazing in Italy how many, um, how many different grape varieties are still grown and produced. Um, quite wonderful in my opinion. Uh, one of my favourite grape varieties and probably one of the most famous Italian red wine grape varieties is Sangiovese, um, which is grown in quite a few different areas, but it's probably the most famous in Tuscany, mm. um, where it's the main um, grape variety used to make... Um, uh, Chianti wines. <clears throat> um, so Sangiovese has also been grown in Australia and other New World areas as well. Um, one of the defining characteristics, among others, in Sangiovese is this um, uh, typical sour cherry um, aspect. So you get. Um, I talked about um, red currant with um, with Cabernet and blackberry with uh, with Shiraz mm. with Sangiovese, there's a, a, a sour cherry type smell that you get as a, as a typical um, characteristic. Um, Sangiovese wines are normally quite dry and also quite savoury. When I say savoury, they have elements of savoury herbs, mm. like you might think about um, uh, rosemary, um, thyme, those types of oregano, those types of... Not specifically each of those herbs, but a herbal... Um, uh, aspect in the in the aromas of the wine, and so um, and also um, relatively um, high acidity for a red wine. Mm-hmm. Um, so they're actually um, they feel they don't feel big and heavy on the palate. They have a little bit of uh, lightness and medium body yeah. to them. Yep. And so if you're looking at matching, um, I guess something that might spring to mind straight away would be something like venison. Um, mm. where venison is quite a strong-flavoured meat and yeah. certainly a very savoury meat and it has a little bit of um, uh, um, a... I can't think of the word, rustic character. And the, those elements in the, in the venison um, can match really nicely with, um, with a Sangiovese, with those rustic, um, earthy, herbal qualities and also with that nice acidity and the, and the sour cherry. Something that's interesting is that in Australia now, they've rarely used corks for wine bottles. They're mm-hmm. now using metal tops. Can you just expound on that a little? Sure. It's, uh, I guess, in some uh, parts of the wine industry, a, uh, a vexatious topic um, because the tradition of using cork goes back a couple of hundred years. Um, cork is uh, is a really um, is a good closure for wine in a lot of ways. Um, it's a natural product. It uh, regenerates uh, naturally. Um, grows on 
trees. Cork is actually the bark of a, of a type of oak tree, and uh, you can harvest the, the bark every um, after a certain number of years, and the tree will grow back a new layer of bark. So it's 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 a um, it's good. Yeah, in mm. that way, it's it's a good from an environmental sustainable. Point of view. Yes, um, as compared with the metal closure, metal closures are made from aluminium. Um, there's a lot of uh, inputs in the in the production of aluminium. Energy. Yep. Energy inputs, and there's also pollution, which is caused um, in the production of aluminium. But um, aluminium, um, uh, as a closure for wine, is um, is very very stable, and uh, it's almost impossible. Um, or it seems to be so far. With uh, Australian winemakers have been using screw screw top closures for um, more than ten years now. Um, uh, very unusual for the wine to to become faulty under under a screw top. Well, Phil, this has been absolutely fascinating. If people want to find out more, have you got a website or a place where people can go to investigate all the things you've been talking about? No. <laughs> oh, that's not very good. Um, I, I I actually don't have a website. The the, the magazine that I write for is uh, Coast Living magazine, which is based in the north coast of New South Wales. Um, so that could be a good place. But to is start. that online? Can people access the it? The magazine is online, yeah. Coast Living. Coast Living. So yeah. would it be www.coastliving.com or something? I'm sorry, I don't have the, um, uh, I don't have the website. People can find it. Yeah, if, they, if you Google Coast Living. So how many then, how many columns have you done now? About I've eight? done six. Six. I, I, yeah, the magazine only comes out quarterly, right. so I write one. I would advise people to read them because it does make my mouth squirt so to speak when I read them and I learn an awful lot I didn't know that my son knew so much <laughs> anyway Phil it's been absolutely fascinating I've learned a, a tremendous amount and I'm sure the listeners have also something quite different from the subjects that we normally discuss but a very major part of of civilized living I thank you very much today for this interview my pleasure my guest today on if you love this planet was sommelier uh, Philip Caldicott, who happens to be my eldest son. I learned a lot today. I had no idea he knew so much. But also I find uh, the production of wine absolutely fascinating and everything that goes with it. I hope you enjoyed it. It's something completely different. We'll be back with you next time with another fascinating program. Uh, if you want to go and access our programs, go to ifyoulovethisplanet.org where you can also donate if you would like to help us. Thanks for listening. Bye for now. You've been listening to If You Love This Planet with Dr. Helen Caldicott. This program is broadcast on community radio across the United States including our host station, KPFT Pacifica, Houston, Texas. This program is produced and engineered by Jazz Williams, co-produced by Scott Powell, and our publicity and outreach are coordinated by Amanda Bellerby. To listen to previous shows or to make a donation, go to our website, ifyoulovethisplanet.org.